on this episode of Surf Splendor. What it was like shaping boards for Andy Irons. And I see him walking on the beach for his heat with a 7.6. And he, and he never wrote this thing. Mm-hmm. He never he just waxed it up. Ah, it's, it'll go. <laughs> he paddles out, got a giant, giant wave on, on the second reef. Rolled the thing all the way and just big turns, you know, on the outside. And then when it dropped into this the inside reef, he just just set it up and just got funneled all the way through, almost down the gums. And what it was like inventing the nose guard and how it felt receiving that first order. He told us he wanted a place and wanted for 20000 And I go, 20, you want $20,000 worth? And he said, no, he wants 20,000 units. And that, that, that um, computed to a $100,000 sale. So that was, that was just one order. That's Eric Arakawa, right now, on an all-new Surf Splendor. Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really glad that you found us. A quick order of business before we get into the show. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. I'm thrilled that you found us. I hope that you uh, enjoyed episode one with Chris Cote. If you haven't yet listened to that, definitely go back and, and find it. It's both on our website, which is surfsplendorpodcast.com, and you can also find it on iTunes. And I would suggest it's easiest to go through iTunes. Just click the subscribe button, and all future episodes will automatically be downloaded to your computer. Also, importantly... Our show is completely free, but the best way to support us is just by sharing it with a friend. It'd be easiest to do it on social media. That way we can track the show's growth and track people's feedback. We encourage you to leave comments on iTunes and review the show there. That will help grow the audience. And also give us feedback on the show. Let us know ideas that you would like to see implemented, some show ideas. So anyways, go to surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then also follow us on social media, at Surf Splendor. Thanks. Enjoy the show. This episode of Surf Splendor is brought to you by U.S. Blanks. U.S. Blanks is the world's leading supplier of surfboard blanks. With the widest variety of blank sizes, rocker selections, stringer options, available in polyurethane and EPS, your surfboard blank is completely customizable. This episode is with Eric Arakawa. Eric not only uses U.S. Blanks to shape his surfboards, he's actually part of the design team at U.S. Blanks, along with Rusty Preisendorfer, Tom Parrish, and others. Eric's responsible for one of U.S. Blanks' most popular blanks, the 64EA. Visit usblanks.com to learn more about the only surfboard blank made entirely in the USA. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. Surf Splendor is, very simply, just conversations about surfing. So, a lot of the episodes will feature surfers, but this episode kicks off our Shaper series. So, it's actually with surfboard shaper Eric Arakawa. This interview was actually recorded in March 2013, 
and I spent a couple of days with Eric at his workspace on the North Shore of Oahu, which is not far from his childhood home and really where he spent his entire career. What interested me most about Eric uh, that I had not known previously, this was actually my first meeting with him, and I, I just knew of him as a surfboard shaper, but what interested me most was just his innate savvy as a business person and his ability to manage business and his lifestyle as a shaper. It's really, you know, striking a balance between master craftsman and successful business manager is a trait that we don't often see in the surf business, but Eric has been able to flourish in both realms. So we discuss that in this interview. We discuss not only his shaping ability, but you know, he invented the nose guard and he's had a lot of, um, a lot of different businesses that he's been involved in and successfully as well. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic and he's equally skilled at both. So that I feel made for a really interesting interview and, um, and I hope that you guys enjoy it. But my first exposure to Eric Arakawa that I recall was in 1998 it was when Andy Irons won both the OP Pro and the U.S. Open in Huntington Beach in two consecutive weeks. They ran the contest back-to-back, basically, and Andy took them both. I remember standing in the water up to my knees, and Andy was doing these huge backside floaters on head-high closeouts on, on south side of the pier. And um, I know more recently, Freddie P., Freddie Patachia, has been riding Eric's boards, and he's been absolutely ripping he looked the best I've ever seen down at that El Salvador contest a week or two ago. So um, shaping boards for pros is really just one facet of Eric's career. He's played an instrumental role in board design and in the community, basically, on the North Shore of Oahu for the past three decades. So we'll begin the interview at the beginning, discussing Eric's early life. Oh, and one more thing. The audio for this episode was unwisely recorded in Eric's shaping room. So I apologize for the echo and the low quality. Eric was mic'd, I was not, but um, you know, we'll work out the bugs and the show will improve in the future. So, thanks. telling me a story about the first board he ever shaped. He and his father were walking behind an apartment building when Eric noticed something sticking out of a dumpster. It was the bottom half of a broken North Shore gun. The year was 1967. We probably got about three feet of it. Okay. So not much. And um, it was during the school semester. I remember us having to go, go to school and we couldn't really put a whole lot of time into the project. I remember one day we came back home and it was shaped. Oh, really? My dad had shaped it. Wow. He cut the thing down and, and um, shaped this little board. And it was just like this it was a round nose. And, it, and he kind of preserved the old outline of the pintail with the box in it. He left the box in. <laughs> and uh, it was cool, you know? I mean, it was, I had never, I, probably, I think that was probably the first time I've actually seen actual surfboard foam, polyurethane foam. And um, 
I don't know what happened. There's like a blank from the shape to the lamination, but all I remember is I have two other brothers that surf too. I'm the oldest. And I remember one evening, three of us are huddled around this board. It's glassed red, red pigment. The whole thing is just, um, it's almost there. And, and there's six hands on it with sandpaper. And we're sanding this little tiny thing. <laughs> this little tiny board, I mean, we could, you know, barely have enough room for our shoulders to fit, you know, around this thing. And, yeah. and we're all just trying to get in edgewise to kind of get our, that's funny, you know, our work in, you know, and uh, our hands on it. But uh, it was fun. I remember, I just remember distinctly the smell of the resin that was being sanded. Really? Yeah. We were wet sanding it. It was, it was, it was fun. And, um, so did all you guys ride that little thing? We all did. I mean, you couldn't, it was so small. We couldn't stand up on it. Yeah. Um, did you put a fin in it? We did put a fin. My dad actually, there was a fin that was in it, was, was big, long, black box fin. And he cut it down and reshaped it. Oh, wow. Refolded it. And um, took it out to Waikiki. Yeah. Off the wall and caught some waves. It pushed a lot of water. It wasn't a real good yeah. board, but uh, it was fun. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it was rock solid. It was, a, to this day, probably the, most, the strongest board I've ever. What year do you think that was? Maybe, maybe 1967. It's amazing. 60, yeah, 67, 68. But yeah, it was, it was, those are fun days. We used to spend all day at the beach. Right. All day. Most of the day was in the water. When you're a kid, you can make oh, we just did. anything. No, know? we did it. We were in the water. We were catching waves. We were doing all kinds of stuff. We used to take out air mattresses. Yeah. We'd catch waves on air mattresses. We'd catch on anything. That's so Those wooden boards. We used to get, um, my friends had some bright idea just get McDonald's. Oh yeah, those trays. Those trays from McDonald's yeah. and we just them out with those things. It's like a hand plane. Yeah, 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 so. That's awesome. The spark was lit. Eric wanted a new surfboard. He did extra chores to earn money. He sold little molded concrete flower pots for 25 cents a piece. But with the price of a new surfboard being over $100, he did the math and couldn't imagine ever selling the 400 flower pots it required to buy his new board. Then an opportunity presented itself. Again, I didn't know where to get a blank, but my brother had a 6'6 six, six, uh, twin fin shaped by Craig Sugihara, the founder of Tana Country. It must have been about four inches thick, maybe three and a, at least three and a half inches thick. It was really thick. And I decided one day it was, that was thick enough mm -hmm. to strip and to reshape mm -hmm. and get another board up. And I, I don't remember if I asked my brother for permission, but I was the oldest, so it didn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> but, so uh, I stripped it, and that super thick board came down to about probably, I want to say two and a half. Yeah. Back then that was really thin, and it was a 5.8. Okay. And uh, it was a 5'8 wing round pintail. And I remember I thought, man, when I was done, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. That shape was beautiful. I had friends that came by. I had a, I had a couple of friends that came by. I go, wow, you shaped that? And obviously they didn't know what they were looking at either, you know? Yeah. And um, I thought, wow, hey, maybe I have some talent here, some hidden talent. I glassed it up and uh, rode it. I remember paddling out to Pupakea. 
that was the first time I tried it. And um, it was the worst board I've ever written really? to this day, probably. Yeah, I would have to say, I, I think I, I could say I'm pretty confidently that um, that is probably the worst board I've ever written. Oh my gosh. Ever. Did that minimize the... I was way ahead of my time because it was a 5.8 and the board had probably about five and a half inches of nose rocker in it. Oh my gosh. When most boards only had just barely over three inches at the time. Yeah. Well... <laughs> it just didn't, it did, didn't, it didn't paddle. It just, the proportions were all wrong and everything. Sure. Did the um, experience of it not working, you know, in the surf negate the enjoyment of producing the no it, it didn't it didn't discourage me i just uh you know i don't know learn from that later, learn from that and just uh a f one of my friends asked me to build one for him oh okay yeah but that was straight off of, of, of a blank which i've never done before okay you know did that go better it went better i had someone else glasses who actually had more experience and and, and the board looked Really nice. So cool. Yeah, it actually looked like a like a surfboard. Got it. I don't know how I, I couldn't tell you how it rode, but sure. Yeah, and so that was that was so that was encouraging, and it led me to doing the, to the next board for another friend, and and um, pretty soon I had friends of friends ordering boards, and um, just we're, one day it just dawned on me, I you know, and I thought maybe I'm in business. Eric was 16 at the time. He was shaping and glassing in his parents' garage. While they were supportive of his new hobby, they had also begun receiving complaints from his neighbors about errant foam dust and resin fumes wafting through their yards. Eric decided that maybe it was time to find a new workspace. There were these farms down uh, below um, our community. You know, we used to live up in, up in Pearl City. A friend's, my friend's family had this little shed. It was actually more like a it was more like a little house. It didn't have a kitchen or anything or any plumbing, but it was a good-sized building, and it was it was vacant. And he said, hey, maybe my mom will let you use it. And so I checked it out, and it was, like, perfect. Really? It was perfect. Um, you just had to move a wall over. It was just, it was just, it was room enough for just a nice big shaping room and a little place to store some blanks. And so I was in there for um, probably about three years. Maybe, 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 maybe two, but, and I had to pay rent, it's the first time, so I really knew that, hey, I'm, I'm in business. I mean, I had to pay five bucks a month for rent. <laughs> five bucks, and then, one day, probably about a year later, my friend's mom, my landlord, had to come and break the news to me, so that she's gonna have to up, up the rent to 20 bucks. Ooh. It's a big jump. 400%. Yeah. Jump. But you know what? <laughs> 20 bucks. <laughs> it was, was that still a good deal at and, the time? Or? Yeah, it was because they were paying electricity. Oh, okay. There you go. That's <laughs> so, why she needed to raise it. So, yeah. I had an air conditioner in there and everything, and that's probably what, you know, so. Uh, there, that's uh, It was really gracious. Uh, they were really Eric's shaping career took off after high school. Ed Angulo was working with Hawaiian Island Creations. He befriended Eric and asked him to help shape a few boards under the HIC label. Ed also allowed Eric to copy his templates, which really is unheard of. Eric recalls bringing his own masonite and tracing all of Ed's templates. 
He still has those templates today and credits this one act of generosity from Ed as the first real boost in his career. This also is the beginning of what would later become a partnership with HIC. But Eric took some time off to explore business ownership, working under his own label. He dreamed about expanding the Island Classics brand beyond just surfboards, and that pursuit took him to Europe. For a number of years, I had I was doing Island Classics, okay. and that's when I had Michael and Derek writing for me, and yeah. Ronnie Burns and Gary Clisby. I had a, had a, had a Really good local team here. What, um, in 19, 1980, there were a bunch of um, surf, surfboard brands coming up. Sure. Developing, you know. Um, gotcha was pretty new. Sean Thompson just just launched his Instinct brand. There was a whole bunch of other smaller brands all over the place. It seemed like every month there was a new, you know, board short line. But anyway, uh, um, I came up with this name, Island Classics, and it was intended to be a board short company. I uh, worked with a uh, fashion designer here and she developed some some designs and I got a um, partner in California and um, he was gonna be the money guy but anyway when it, to make a long story short in the end um, I decided I don't know if I should even go here but <laughs> I realized that I could not Enter this partnership. Okay, sure. And I just called the whole thing off. Yeah. And uh, decided to regroup, just regroup. At that time, I actually, um, shortly after that, I flew to Europe um, and started building boards there. I needed to kind of, I needed to kind of get away, uh, kind of get a change of scenery and kind of refocus and, and see what I was, I'm going to do, you know with with my life so this whole time i thought that i was going to get into the the garment business and yeah you know pulling board shorts and um i started working for this company and then um this this little surf shop over there had a great time great surf it was a great year it was a, it was a year i met morris cole and um, uh kern rabbit hmm. bruce raymond all, uh, a bunch of the quicksilver crew they were all there a bunch of the founders um, and anyway, um, I, uh, one thing like another, and I started actually building boards for Hang 10 Europe. Oh, okay. And this guy, uh, flew us to Paris, we did these shows with him, and he decided he was going to put some money and build a surfboard factory down in Hossegor, and, uh, wanted us to build boards there. And, um, he hired this, 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 uh, French guy to manage production and uh, I was one of the guys that was going to be shaping boards and that lasted for a few months and it just went kaput. Really? Yeah, it just, and I could see clearly from, from my perspective is this guy, he didn't know the business. Yeah. He didn't know who to put there to run it. He didn't really know what he wanted. So, um, and then this one day just sitting um, alone there, I realized, you know, this guy, he has a lot of money and wants to get into the surfboard business, but he, he doesn't do it because he doesn't know it. Yeah. And I, and I thought, well, I'm a surfboard guy trying to get into the garment business. I don't have any money and I don't know the business. Then what are the chances of my success in light of 
this current situation, I decided, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and take Island Classics, I'm going to go back to Hawaii, and I'm going to start a surfer brand. I'm going to start a surfer brand with that. And so that's what I did. Cool. Shortly after that, um, I, could, I got reconnected with Michael Ho and uh, started building boards for him. He was my, he was one of the first team riders. I had uh, Max Medeiros, Michael Hole, and Derek came shortly after that, and Ronnie Burns, and that was it. So we had a, a really fun run for about 10 years, wow. about 10 years building, building that. After a decade of successful surfboard shaping under the Island Classics label, Eric's entrepreneurial sense kicked in when he saw a need present itself in the midst of a tragedy. There was this big scare in the industry because Al Merrick got sued because a, a girl lost her eye. Oh no. Yeah. And she got hit and hit. And it was actually, from what I know, um, Al was surfing and um, did a cutback and the nose was bored, hit a girl and um, she lost her eye. So there was this, um, Rob Burns, the founder of Locomotion, was on this big campaign to make surfboards safer. And the first item on the agenda was to make noses blunt. And so he was trying to get everyone just to round their nose and it was, it made them look, I thought it made them look ugly, it was sure. hard to shape and everything. They were hard to glass. And I thought, well, it's still hard. I mean, you can still get hit yeah. with, um, hard enough with a blunt object and get hurt. So I thought, hey, the only solution is maybe to rubberize it or to, to pat it. And so, I mean, and that's where the nose guard came from. So we just did a few prototypes, made a few crude um, molds and casted our first, you know, nose guards and tried them and they worked and, you know, one thing led to another and we got a, um, Tool maker, mold maker in California, and we were off and started this business. And we we didn't even know we were. I mean, at the time, we didn't really know what the market was going to be like and how it would, you know, accept a product like this. But uh, we did. We just we just stepped out in faith. You know, I had this this friend of mine um, who surfed and just sold his business and he was looking for something else to do and oh, okay. we came together, David Skodelsky, and we put together this business called Surfco. So anyway, we, we go to this, uh, we go to the trade show, we had uh, our first production run, I forgot what it was, I think we had something like maybe 5,000, we had a minimum run, wow. about 5,000 to do. And um, we had 5,000 we, we 5, made and we went to this trade show, we didn't know what we were doing, we didn't know how to set up a booth. This is an ASR, Action Sports Retailer, yeah. back then. And um, we had a little 10 by 10 booth, and um, we're there just, uh, we got our displays and everything, and, and um, we're hoping to get maybe to break even. Maybe to get, uh, we would have been happy if we had $10,000 in sales, maybe even 5,000, you know? And um, I'm not sure what day it was. It wasn't the first day, it might have been the second or the third day uh, this guy comes up to us, this, um, uh, this Japanese businessman who has a, had a surf distribution over in Japan and he saw a nose guard and um, 
he said, yeah, I'd like to place an order. He looked at it, he goes, yeah, I can sell this. I'd like to place an order. And uh, he told us he wanted to place an order for 20,000. And I go, 20, you want $20,000 worth? And he said, no, he wants 20,000 units. And that, 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 um, competed to a hundred thousand dollar sale. Oh my god. So that was that was just one order. Holy cow. <laughs> and were you comfortable fulfilling it? Yeah, we, we 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 were able to yeah it wasn't a problem. Okay. But we were shocked. Yeah. <laughs> we were shocked. It's a good problem to have yeah. though. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. Fast forwarding this whole thing, that was another great ride. It was, you know, we're doing that. It was, it was fun. It was, I learned a lot um, during that stint, during that partnership. Learned a lot about um, sales and marketing, distribution worldwide. Uh, dealing with reps and, and all that uh, um, product development, mm -hmm. we developed other products, um, you know, along the way. But um, fast forwarding again, I got to another place where I realized that I just need to get back to my passion mm -hmm. and to what I really know, and and that was building boards. So. I uh, left that partnership and um, just started building boards again full time. Wow. Yeah. Eric's business life had gotten increasingly chaotic. His career as a board builder was gaining momentum. He was trying to balance his time between running his multiple businesses but still spending time in the shaping room. At home, he had a wife and young children. With a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of responsibility, Eric received a call from an old employer, Hawaiian Island Creations. They offered him a job as a shaper under their label, HIC. Eric had enough business on his own, and his Island Creations label was thriving. With his plate already full, he viewed HIC as just another responsibility, so he politely declined their offer. And then they called again. And then shortly after that again, uh, I got called on again, and. Um, he said, hey, they're not just talking. They said they, 
really want to know if you would, if there's a way they, we could work something out where I'd shape, shape for them. And I said, ah, just tell, tell make up, make an offer I can't refuse. And I just left. I just totally f yeah. forgot about it. <laughs> and then one day they say, hey, they have an offer. About, about a week later, I get a call and um, this person says, hey, they have an offer. Who? They? Who's they? And it HIC, they have an offer. They want to make you an offer. And um, so. Cool. Yeah. But anyway. That was it. What was your apprehension to work with them? I mean, why not work with them? You were just busy enough as is and burned out on I'll do my own. I'll, no, yeah, I'll do my own thing. No, it's just. Um, I got my own business. Now, again. I'm not just wearing many hats, but I'm wearing all the hats in the business. Right. So now I'm not just the um, I'm not just the the guy in charge of marketing, product development, and all that, and board production. Uh, I have I'm the general manager, you know, and everything else. Accounting, sales, and the janitor. Yeah, exactly. It was just I was working long, long hours, and when HIC said they made made an offer, they wanted to bring my wife in. So when my wife heard the offer, she said, take it. Goes, she just wanted our lives to be a little simpler. You she wanted, she wanted problem, you know, right? we had young kids at the time. Yeah. She wanted more family time. Yeah. And you know, and looking back, I have no regrets. Good. You know, there's, I, my kids are pretty much grown up right now. I mean, I can start, I can start. Another 50 business if I want to, but I only got one shot raising a family. Sure. So. When we come back, we'll hear what it was like working with Andy Irons and other key relationships that Eric values most when our program continues. Next time on an all new episode of Surf Splendor. Aaron Chang shares the story of the first photo he ever printed. I printed a picture of the Coronado Ferry. Okay. And I'll never forget, you know, when you, the first time you see something materialize by dipping a piece of paper in a chemical, it's just an, a, an amazing process and one that I'll, I'll never forget that first moment. And Morgan Mason recounts the early days developing relationships with Kelly Slater, Dane Reynolds, Bobby Martinez, and Tom Curran. I went down to Rincon actually to surf and it was quite good and I paddled out for a couple waves and sure enough Kelly paddles out after like my fourth wave and so I ran in grabbed my camera and just that afternoon he was testing a certain board in the course of an hour and a half. It surfed so well and so tight that I put up an edit and it did really well. It got yeah. like 1.3 1, 1. million hits or something. That's right, we're discussing surf photography next time on Surf Splendor. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. The vast majority of shapers rely on a local community of surfers and word of mouth to grow their businesses. Very few have the opportunity to shape boards for world-class surfers. Being located on the North Shore of Oahu, Eric Arakawa has developed relationships with and supplied boards to a lot of Hawaii's best surfers for the past three decades. I was curious to hear about how those relationships have influenced Eric's career. Some, some are some are more beneficial than others. Some are invaluable. 
some are more of a liability. And so um, it really it, it, it comes down to the athlete. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had Michael Holt writing for me. Right. Um, he, he, without a doubt, has um, shaped and honed my skills and, um, you know, and, and, and helped me develop designs more than any other server really? ever till this day. Um, he was probably the most difficult person to, to build a board for. And other people that have worked with him, I've heard of, I've, I've talked to other shapers and, and, and they, they say the same thing. And it's not, it's not a negative thing, but he is really, really picky, really demanding. I tell you, you have to be, you have to be on your game. You have to be spot on. And uh, there have been a lot of times where, where I built boards from him and he said, hey, this board is good, but I can't win on it. And so he was always looking for that magic board. I mean, I mean, all servers are saying they're looking for that. But this guy, he was just, he was relentless. And so um, at times it was very frustrating, but it was very, very challenging. And, and if it wasn't for that relationship early on in my career, I, I think I'd be years behind. Really? Oh yeah, years behind. Wow. And so even work, working with him helped me work with, with the riders that, that came afterwards. Yeah. You know, guys like Andy, guys like, uh, uh, you know, some of the other two, the, the current guys I have right now, Jules and Teo and, you know, Reef, doing both Freddie Pataccia and some of the other touring pros. That relationship, I based everything off that relationship. With Michael? That's my foundation. Crazy. Yeah. That was incredible. So you had the right guy, it's, it's invaluable. Are you still shaping boards for him periodically? Uh, no, I haven't done for a while. You know, the most recent one was for uh, Mason Mason Ho. He came a few years ago and said he needed to get some boards for Sunset for Mason. And uh, it was cool because we were collaborating again yeah. over design. Yeah. And, but it wasn't for him. It was for right. his son. <laughs> yeah. One day, uh, years ago, this is like when I was still building boards for him. And we, uh, uh, we had... You know, we we had both just gotten married, um, not just gotten married. I think we had we had kids. We we had kids about the same time. Our first one. You know, I had a daughter. He had a, his son Mason, uh, and our wives gave birth around the same time. And uh, one day, um, I'm at his house, and he comes out and says, "Hey, it'd be cool. Wouldn't it be cool?" Um, Man, I mean, you know, our kids grow up and your kids are shaping for my kids. And I look at them and I'm going, you know, Mike, no way. Next time the table's going to be turned, your kids are going to be shaping for my kids, man. <laughs> your, your kids are going to get the abuse. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
Eric and Andy had a decade-long relationship and Andy won three world titles on his boards. In what was widely regarded as one of surfing's greatest rivalries, Andy Irons challenged 11-time world champion Kelly Slater, whom temporarily retired after his loss to Andy. Andy was known for his raw and spontaneous power. He surfed death-defying waves with the reckless abandon that most people express in two-foot beach breaks. He was a hero to many, and even Kelly Slater recognizes Andy as one of his greatest inspirations. People don't get pushed by, by nothing. You know, competitively in sports and stuff, you get to see what people are made of when they really get pushed their back to the wall. And I know that Andy has made me a better, more focused, stronger competitor and, and surfer. You know, whether I have been in situations I wanted to admit it or not. Unfortunately, on November 2nd, 2010, Andy was found dead in a Dallas hotel room. The official cause of death was cardiac arrest due to a severe blockage from a main artery of his heart. Drugs were found in his system. He was 32 years old and survived by his wife, Lindy, who was seven months pregnant with their first son, Axel. I was interested to hear about how Eric met Andy, their relationship over the years, and how it influenced Eric's career. He was young. I mean, I remember. He was young. He was really young. He was young. like a teenager. He was a teenager. I see by pro. He was writing your boards. I feel. Yeah, like. yeah. He was a teenager. He was uh, seventeen. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, what was it like working with him through the years? It was. Um, I mean, well, let me preface by saying, I feel like there's guys who have boards from shapers. Maybe it's a business relationship, but there's other ones that seem more organic, like Kelly and Al have been working together yeah. forever. John and Pisa, John John and Pisa yeah, yeah. working together out of a really organic thing. It seemed like Andy was really you guys worked together for a long time. Yeah, um, going through a lot of boards and a lot of different kind of uh, times in his career. You know, when he was up and down or whatever. So. That seems like a more organic relationship and a real relationship as opposed to some that just are business relationships, you know? Right. So what was that like working in that? It was good. You know what? I mean, when I compare him, like I said, I always use Michael as my, my standard on how a surfer shape, shape a relationship should be and, and how astute a shaper needs to be with his equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and now when we go, we look at Andy's generation, that was not, it's not the same generation. Whole other elements came into play, this whole corporate element. Um, there was a lot more money on tour, um, a lot more events. Everything was just rapid fire. There was hardly any time or off season to sit down and to develop equipment to go through a methodical process. And that's what I was used to, to doing with, with Michael. Um, and so we ended up just building a lot of boards, just a lot of boards and having boards ready and just, you know, having them, having them ready for him to try. And so, and it's, it's pretty common now where these pros, they just go through so many yeah. boards. I mean, you go through hundred boards a year. It's crazy. Easily. You know, 100 boards a year. Yeah. And, um, but, um, so, 
Uh, no, well, it was it was great developing that relationship with um, with Andy. But um, as far as developing um, designs and all that, it was it was totally different. It was a different world. Yeah. Like I said, the whole cor corporate element was involved. A lot more money on tour, and um, yeah, I mean, we barely. I, I can't even remember really having a breather during that time. Really? Yeah. Um, did that? I mean, that obviously is a different environment. But do you feel like that also helped develop your craft in a different way than it, than Michael, let's say, helped develop it? Because it's a different environment, but it's also a different level of surfing. I mean, Andy was doing things that nobody. That we've never seen before, you know. Oh, he did stuff, um, and different waves too, yeah, like in Tahiti and stuff, where yeah, yeah. those are different board designs. Yeah. So, I mean, that year he he won, um, he won the U.S. Open, yeah, he won two events at Huntington, right, on this the 6 2 round pin I did for him, thruster. I was there, yeah, you were there, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, what? it was a brand new board, he never he didn't even ride it, really. Michael would never do that, never even. He would never slip a board in his bag before he got in a plane unless he knew the board. Mm -hmm. uh, and and he just threw the board in the bag and I, I'm, I'm sure he, he must have had a couple of practice surfs out there, but he did it. He won two events back to back and I just go, what are you doing? <laughs> it worked out, you know, but... Yeah. Um, just and, a lot of confidence in his equipment. I mean, yeah. And then a couple of years ago, uh, not a couple, a couple of years later, we had Pipe Masters. He was there trying to requalify, and um, I remember it was huge. It was breaking the second reef, and he, and I see him walking on the beach for his heat with a seven six. And I go, and he never even wrote this thing. Mm -hmm. He never he just waxed it up. Ah. It's, it'll go. <laughs> he paddles out, and uh, he had a man man heat with uh, Luke Egan, and and he just he just waxed him. Really? Yeah, scored a ten, caught a giant giant wave on on the second reef, rolled a thing all the way, and just these big turns, you know, on the outside, and then when it dropped into this the inside reef, he just just set it up and just got. Really? Funnel all the way through, almost down the gums. And then kicked out and then came in. I remember, I remember um, Luke standing on the beach because he was ahead. And, and Andy just, Luke was picking up all these clean ones on the inside. And Andy just, about 10 minutes before the end of the heat, he just paddled way, way outside. There's just nobody there. Just paddled way out. Burned a lot of time. Just sat there, sat there, waited for this one. Luke had already come in. Um... And was ahead, was leading the heat, and then he catches his, his bomb and just does his thing, and that was it. Crazy. Yeah. Got the 10. And, and got the 10. And, yeah. awesome. That was it. And I think he qualified, requalified on that. Amazing. Yeah. But anyway, so it's different. It's, it's you know, it's scratching my head, and he came in, I go, you know, and he worked out. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't recommend that again. Working with top athletes requires Eric to maintain tremendous precision and consistency with his craft. 
every shaper has had surfers ask them to recreate that magic board with subtle but significant variation in wood stringers, foam pours, and glassing. I wondered if it's even possible to recreate any board. That question is one that Eric too had pondered. The thought prompted a memory for Eric. He told me about a valuable lesson he learned while in France. He was visiting the factory of a company that makes a variety of sports equipment. Uh, one of the other relationships that I really valued was this relationship with Solomon for a while. And it was only, it was only about six years. And, um, you know, obviously, I mean, Solomon there in winter sports, but they tried to make a go at it, you know, with, with surfboards. They invited me to come over to their, their factory, their R&D, their facility, their headquarters in France uh, for a tour to talk with them. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't decided, I wasn't sure if I wanted to get involved with them. I wasn't sure like, are there going to be like a BIC, mm -hmm. you know, or some other, some other company from overseas that wants to make some quick money. And so anyway, I wasn't sure. So they said, Hey, just fly over, we'll fly you over. You can check out the operation, check out, I mean, it's the operation. It was, it's a huge place. It's a, it's a campus. Their, their, their headquarters and their R&D facility. They have factories all over the place, but they have this one, one campus. They have their corporate headquarters with their R&D centers. It's huge. It's about three, the R&D manufacturers have about three football fields. And um, I remember my first few days there and um, they gave me their lead engineer to give me a tour of their whole testing facility. Huge. I mean, the stuff they used to do, this control test, he spent thousands of dollars a day just breaking stuff just to test their stuff and to, to test the uh, viability of their, their, their designs and durability and, and, and everything else. And um, so I said, now, when you're working with, with athletes, because he was showing me shoes that they developed for, for um, their Olympic athletes, because they own Adidas too. The uh, golf shafts they do for TaylorMade and everything skis and you know all the other stuff, obvious stuff but so i asked him hey so you're you're dealing with all these athletes i said you know on our end i have surfers that will ask me to to, to copy a surfboard they say this board's magic and i will copy this board as best i can i mean from all um from from the naked eye it looks like the same board we try to control everything even the glassing the lamination all that and they'll take this board out, this, this copy, and they say, it, it doesn't work. It's not like the other one. Yeah. And, I, and I, so I asked them, so is this real? Are they really feeling something that's real, or is it just in their head? And it was kind of a trick question for them. I really want to know where he was at. And he said, he said, these elite athletes at their level, what they feel is real and it's not imagined. He says, at their level, they can, they can um, distinctly um, pick out a small modulus change, you know? And, and after he said that, I go, okay, you know what? Then maybe I can work with this company. Hmm. I kind of started. I I, kind of, I started to kind of open up a little bit more, and I go, okay. And I started asking him a few other questions. He was the one that worked with Ernie Els and developed the bubble shaft. And he says they went out the driving range one day, 
he was out there in France and he had 10 different shafts, these clubs, and they were all just, just a slight change, slight percentage change. And he said, Aaron would just swing 12 drivers. And at the end, he'd pick out one. He goes, this is the best one. And they had these, uh, these, uh, uh, these Olympic runners. And they'd have these shoes where the soles would have different, um, uh, different types of composites and he'd, different uh, fiber orientations and all that. And he'd, they'd have some with, with a certain amount of uh, carbon in them. They'd have other stuff, certain types of high-performance rubbers. And so they would give them like just pairs and pairs of different shoes and different soles and they would test them on the track. And he'd say like after like say 10, a dozen pairs, this guy would just pick out one pair of shoes and he goes, this is the one. Hmm. And he said from the next one to the other one, he says, well, this one's not, not, not that good. He said, there's such a minute difference. And he says, no, this stuff is real. And he goes, that's my job. He goes, that's my job here at Solomon to figure out what that is and to, 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 to uh, zero in on that and to enhance that in all of our products. Whether it be shoes or skis or boots or yeah. clothing, fabrics. Right. He goes, that's my job. And after he said that, he goes, okay, I'm sold. I'll work with you guys. Eric began that story by defining it as an important relationship that he's always valued. The theme came up again when I asked him about his favorite part of the surf business. And then again, when I asked him where he sees his business evolving next. The really the, 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 best, the best things in this business are the relationships. And the one of the things I really I, I love is working with other people that take their business seriously, the craft, and have a passion for what they do and for their product. And, you know, I know it sounds cliche, but no, I mean, that's just honest truth. Like, I, I'm not exactly sure where I see myself going. I, I, I think um, I think I have a lot of, lot more years left, and that's one of the advantages of being a shaper and not a pro surfer. Yeah. <laughs> Longevity of career. So, um, but I, I think I have a lot more years, and, and it's not just really, to, not so much to design, but I feel like, um, for me, I would love to invest in relationships in other people, you know. The, the, with, the, with the team I have working for me, I have a great, great team of people here. And that, that allows me to, to do what I like to do, you know. If it wasn't for them and having a good crew, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the time. Hmm. Um, for me, the whole, every aspect of the business is, is I'm finding it to be fun. Hmm. You know, and, and enjoyable. Maybe not every aspect, but you know, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you asked me the question, well, where do I see myself going? I think I want to spend more time investing in people. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's a good answer. You know what? Um, love people, use money. Not love money, use people. And that's really what it comes down to. It's at the end. <laughs> That's good. The wealth is in the relationships. Yeah. Really, that's what it comes down to. The wealth is in the relationships.
Eric Arakawa, ladies and gentlemen. I have some closing thoughts after listening to that interview again. Um, this process of interviewing people for the show has been really enjoyable for me. I've been able to meet some people that I've always admired, and what I loved about Eric was that he really cultivated his natural talent with good old-fashioned hard work. In this modern social media age, we, we see people rise to fame so quickly, maybe projected by talent but not really earning it, you know? Um, I admire Eric's work ethic and I think that his business and his board designs really reflect his TLC and his passion. I also really enjoyed that recurring theme in Eric's life of the business world constantly pulling him in and then him constantly being drawn back into the shaping bay. I think it's great that he always finds his way back, back to kind of his passion and what got him started in the business. Um, I think it's also great that U.S. Blanks made this episode possible. Uh, it's great that they've kept Eric supplied with foam for all these years. U.S. Blanks, completely customizable surfboard blanks, supplying the world's finest shapers and made entirely in the USA. Learn more at usblanks.com. Make sure to follow Surf Splendor on social media, at Surf Splendor. Send us feedback, show ideas, maybe post a photo of your Eric Arakawa surfboard. Go to surfsplendorpodcast.com to see show extras like video clips from this interview, surf footage of Andy Irons riding Eric's boards, and much, much more. Subscribe on iTunes, and make sure to rate the show and leave feedback for others to see. Well, thanks for tuning in to the second ever episode of Surf Splendor. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode featuring surf photographers Aaron Chang and Morgan Mason. In the meantime, share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.